This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. From the podglomerate, you're listening to The Feast. I'm Dr. Laura Carlson, and I explore the history of food. From empires of sugar to lunch counter revolutions. Whether it's mom's home cooking or opulent hundred-course dinners, food has fueled politics, technology, religion, and more. History is full of food. And on each episode of The Feast, we're bringing you the meals that made it. Look, my liege! Camelot. 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 It's only a model. As a young, aspiring medieval historian, I grew up on the classic 1975 film Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I loved how it poked some serious fun at a thousand-year-old story. But come to think of it, it's hard to come up with a story that's been redone or remade or reimagined as often as the Arthurian legends. In 2017 alone, there were two major Hollywood films featuring Arthur and the Kingdom of Camelot. First, we had Guy Ritchie's rough-and-tumble King Arthur, Legend of the Sword, which in case you didn't get enough of Richie's gritty take on Arthur in just one film, being Hollywood, this version is set to kick off a whole six-part series of Arthurian movies. So these tales aren't going anywhere soon. But then, as I was surprised to learn, there was actually another major blockbuster in 2017 that also leaned heavily on the Arthurian tales. Transformers. The Last Night. Because, obviously... Now, in this version, and a minor spoiler alert here, Arthur defeats the Saxon tribes in early medieval England with the help of the Transformers, who were hanging out, apparently just biding their time, until cars, planes, and tanks would be invented about a thousand years afterwards. Anyway, for many folks, the Arthurian legends are the story to come out of the Middle Ages. For better or worse, they've set up many of our society's enduring imagery about royal courts, chivalric romance, orders of knights, even magic. But what about food? Didn't folks in Camelot eat? True, the Arthurian legends are probably remembered more for deeds of chivalric bravery, compassionate rulership, even forbidden romance, than epic tales of King Arthur's chicken pot pie recipe or Morgan Le Fay's home-brewed amber ale. And no, those aren't actual things, but wouldn't it be amazing if they were? But just like many of the archetypes the Arthurian legends have given us over the years, eating and drinking, and yes, even feasting, were iconic parts of these stories. But if you don't look closely, you can almost miss the food in many a King Arthur film. Most plots are focused way more on knights battling, I did mention Guy Ritchie directed a King Arthur movie, didn't I? Or, say, the drama-filled romantic triangle of Arthur, Guinevere, and Lancelot. 
which was the subject of not only the 1980s tearjerker First Night, starring Richard Gere as Lancelot and Sean Connery as King Arthur, or even the fantastic 1967 award-winning film Camelot, based on the Broadway musical, which starred Richard Harris and an amazing Vanessa Redgrave. But look in the background of these films. There's feasting everywhere, with Hollywood often leaning pretty heavily on some stereotypical medieval imagery, not too far removed from what you'd find at a medieval times dinner theater show, with meals made up of giant roast meat and tankards upon tankards of ale. Tink this banquet scene from the 1963 film Lancelot and Guinevere. Tors, come and have a tankard of meat with me. My head is going round. I've had two already. Two already? What a drinking man you are. Before the evening is out, you must have at least two more. Everyone loves everyone tonight, and everyone is very happy. Ah, Lancelot! A clip like this doesn't give us much to go on, beyond acknowledging that, yes, there was definitely feasting going on at King Arthur's court, and at least some folks who particularly enjoyed more than a few glasses of mead, a beverage made by fermenting honey, which somehow always denotes feasting in the Middle Ages. But how do these modern depictions compare to the medieval accounts of King Arthur? Just how much mead or ale or even roasted chicken was there? Well, in part, it depends on which medieval version of the King Arthur story you're looking at. Think of the Arthurian legends like the modern reboots of Star Trek or X-Men or even superheroes like Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman. How many stories have we heard about these characters, many of which don't agree with one another in the slightest? Depending on the version, when it was written, and for what audience, you can have vastly different takes on the same basic set of characters or even the same storyline. Now, Different versions or incarnations of the Arthurian legends didn't start with the birth of Hollywood. Even in the Middle Ages, you could read vastly different accounts of Arthur, Guinevere, Lancelot, the whole gang, depending on where and when you lived, or even what kind of story you liked. Now, if you want to get technical and talk about the oldest version of the Arthurian legends, which by no means is a synonym for the most authoritative version of the Arthurian legends, most people usually point to an account written by the Welsh monk Nennius in the 9th century. But even in his version, Arthur was a king who had lived hundreds of years ago, and actually was really more of a warrior than an outright king. After Nennius, a whole range of folks, whether in France, England, or even Germany, took a stab at writing their own version of Arthur, inventing new stories and new characters for new generations of audiences. And eventually, Arthur became a fixture in the literary canon of medieval Europe, a well-known character that saw new version after new version for over 600 years. And you thought Superman was old. But let's get back to the food, shall we? And let's focus for the moment on one version of Arthur. Now, don't worry, we're coming back to the 9th century Nennius, but let's head forward in time for a minute, about 600 years after Nennius. Now, the version we're going to be looking at comes from the 1400s, written in northern England by one Robert Thornton, or so we think, because exactly who this Robert Thornton was is a little bit unclear. 
we can't even say for certain that he came up with the story. He may have simply been copying down his favorite version of the Arthurian legends. But thankfully, he did copy it down. Because Thornton's manuscript is the only copy of this version of the Arthurian legends to survive to the present day. And what a story it is. Now, Thornton's story is usually referred to as the alliterative Mort Arthur, or the death of Arthur. And no, Thornton wasn't being particularly morbid. This title was, for whatever reason, super popular in the 15th century, as it was also the title of the far more widespread medieval version of the Arthurian legends attributed to one Thomas Mallory the one that became more or less the bedrock of many other versions, such as Alfred Lord Tennyson's Idols of the King, even T.H. White's The Once and Future King, which, in case you were wondering, was the one that the Disney movie The Sword in the Stone was based on, but in true Disney style with serious liberties taken. Anyway, I digress. Let's forget Mallory for a minute and focus on one of the first scenes from Thornton's version. The story opens with King Arthur at his court at Christmas. And King Arthur at the beginning of the story is already king. No sword in the stone here, people. As he's enjoying the festivities, a massive delegation arrives, sent from the Roman emperor himself. Now, when someone shows up at your doorstep, particularly in the medieval world, you gotta feed them. And with such important people at your doorstep, it's gotta be a pretty impressive meal. No scrounging around the back of the medieval refrigerator for some cocktail weenies. Now, of course, Arthur, being the perfect king he is, of course, has a feast ready at a moment's notice. And what a feast it is. Here's how Thornton describes a truly epic Arthurian meal. And if you thought food wasn't important in King Arthur, have a listen to this. We're going to take this one line by line. And I should mention before we kick off, the version I'll be reading from has been translated into modern English by Valerie Krishna. The original was written in Middle English, an early version of the language that scholars believe was spoken and written between, let's say, 1100 and roughly 1500. It's the language Chaucer wrote the Canterbury Tales in, as well as the language of the 14th century text Piers Plowman, which contains one of the first references to Robin Hood. Anyway, let's get to Thornton's text. Now remember, the scene begins with King Arthur playing host to a cavalcade of Roman dignitaries, and they're expecting to be wined and dined. Because the Romans were regarded as so great, the royalist blood that ever reigned on the earth, there came in, as the first course, just in front of the king, boar's heads that were bright, shining with silver, served by skilled urbane men in the most splendid garb of royal blood, all in a line, 60 together. Okay, so far, no surprises here. We've definitely seen boar's heads before in medieval feasting. Actually, we did a whole episode on boar's heads during Christmas. Check it out if you haven't heard it yet. But if you haven't, let's just say it's basically the medieval version of a Thanksgiving or Christmas turkey absolutely iconic and totally regular as part of a celebration meal. Anyway, boars and lots of attendants, all to be expected in a royal court. Let's move on. Meet 
fattened through the closed season with frumenti fine. Okay, so they had more meat. That's to be expected. But what about this frumenti business? Well, think of it almost as the Quaker oats of its day. More or less boiled cracked wheat, cooked in milk, even occasionally almond milk. And you thought almond milk was so hip and trendy. Actually, totally medieval. But why the great name, you ask? Well, you could almost say it's a cutesy or diminutive version of the word for grain itself. Think of Wheaties for wheat. Now, grain, which is frumentum in Latin, becomes frumenti. Hey, the Kellogg Company apparently had nothing on the medieval era. So we've got meat, and we've got almost like a porridge made out of wheat. Quite the feast so far. Let's move on. Besides game of one's choice and delectable birds, peacocks and plovers on platters of gold, porcupine piglets that never saw pasture, then herons and hadoin, so beautifully glazed. Right, so now we're really into a little more unusual territory. You don't see too many peacocks and plovers, which is a kind of wading bird, on menus today, even at medieval times. But for most of history in Western Europe and even North America, folks ate way more varieties of birds beyond chicken, turkey, or even the occasional pheasant. Granted, peacocks were a little more unusual, but certainly not unheard of. Folks could still gather around a roast peacock pie in the 17th century, and no one would have batted an eyelid. Speaking of it, if you'd like to hear about the trials and travails of actually making a peacock pie today, there's a fantastic Planet Money episode from 2016 titled, appropriately enough, We Cooked a Peacock. In that episode, they use a 17th century Dutch recipe as inspiration for their own historical peacock pie aspirations. We'll put a link to it in the show notes at thefeastpodcast.org if you're interested. Anyway, so birds and then porcupines. Again, not exactly dish of the year in the 21st century. But medieval diets were nothing if not, shall we say, omnivorous. A late 14th century French text known as Le Menagier de Paris, or The Good Wife's Guide, basically a book on how to run a late medieval household, recommends that a hedgehog, or porcupine, be cooked and served basically like a young chicken, roasted, served with a rich sauce. And speaking of sauce, which is what we think the term hedoin means in Thornton's description here, and granted, I might be taking liberties with pronunciation, this is what gave that beautiful glazing to those roasted herons. Yes, herons. Hey, I told you folks were eating all kinds of birds back in the day. Now, that hedoin means a kind of sauce is by no means certain. There are folks, because this is the kind of thing that people battle over, who think the term means that they were served in their plumage, as in the heron's feathers either hadn't been plucked or had been reassembled on the roasted bird to give it the indication that it was still, well, a bird. Now, this isn't unusual. This type of display was pretty common at the time, when dishes, particularly at elite and royal courts, like King Arthur's, were expected to have a sense of theatricality. So either you have a dish of roast heron in sauce, 
or roast heron decorated with its own feathers. Take your pick. Okay, so we've really covered the range of roast meats here, along with some wheat in our frumenti fine. But Thornton goes on for at least half a page to include an extensive range of dishes, including swans, wild geese, cranes, rabbits served in a cream sauce, and the comparably tame roast pheasant encased in pastry. But here's my question. How was Arthur going to serve to wash down all this meat with? Don't worry. He had it covered. Wines of Alsace and Algrave and others in plenty. Rhine wine in Rochelle. There never was richer. Potent white wines of Venice and Crete. From taps of fine gold. All who fancy may try. The king's sideboard was covered with silver. With great gilded goblets of a glorious shine. There was a chief steward, a stalwart knight, Sir Kay, the gracious, who gave out the wine. Sixty goblets, all matching, sat in front of the king, artistic and exquisite, in sculpted most fair, with precious stones studded over the surface, so no poison could pass in secret within. Interestingly, not a glass of mead or ale in sight. Apparently, King Arthur had quite the wine cove. But did you catch that last bit? The part where King Arthur has 60, as in six zero wine goblets in front of him. Goblets encrusted with precious stones. Not only because they were beautiful, but because, well, at least according to popular medieval belief... Precious stones could indicate the presence of poison. Always a potential threat when you're king. This belief that stones could heal or indicate the presence of nasties nearby was known at the time as lapidaria. Now, for poison purposes, it often meant a belief that if you attached the right kind of stone, often a ruby or sapphire, to your drinking cup, it would somehow let you know if there was poison in your drink. And it wasn't just poison these stones helped with. Just FYI, apparently amethysts were also famous for helping to cure hangovers and general drunkenness. Just a helpful tip for your next night out at the bar. This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. Anyway, we've barely scratched the surface of this epic Arthurian meal. Because, after all, where did these traditions of feasting with 60 wine goblets and roasted heron come from? What was there in English or medieval European tradition in general that inspired folks like Thornton or whoever penned this Arthurian tale, to include such massive over-the-top feasts. More on that when we return. The feast is supported by CastBox, the fastest-growing, highest-rated podcast app on iOS and Android. CastBox has over 50 million free episodes that more than 15 million users download and listen to wherever, whenever. CastBox has also pioneered a brand new way to search. All you have to do is enter a keyword or phrase, and CastBox will search 
all show titles and transcripts of every single episode to deliver exactly what you're looking for. So head on over to your app store, download CastBox, and try it for yourself today. Okay, back to roast porcupines. No, not really. Thornton's epic Arthurian meal may stretch the bounds of belief, but apart from having roast swan and 18 different varieties of wine ready at the drop of a hat when some Romans show up, the obligations of a lord or king to provide both food and drink, if not also a bed to sleep in, to their loyal supporters was a cornerstone of Western European medieval traditions by the 1400s, particularly in places like the British Isles or Scandinavia. Feasting traditions were pretty opulent by that point, and certainly we might expect earlier traditions to have offered much simpler fare. But the actual role of the feast as a bringing together of a community was just as important. But how do we know what can we learn about these earlier feasting traditions? Let's travel backwards a bit in time. Long before Thornton's epic Arthurian feast, let alone Thomas Mallory's considerably more famous edition. Before all that, there was a French poetic tradition of King Arthur, written by one Chrétien de Troyes in the 12th century. Now, Chrétien wrote a whole series of Arthurian stories, some about King Arthur directly, others simply taking place in what we would call today the universe of Arthur, kind of like the Marvel universe. Now, feasting is certainly a part of Chrétien's stories, but compared to the rich descriptions we find in Thornton, details of the food served are a bit thin on the ground here. We even get a sense, reading Chrétien, that he may not be all that concerned with food, especially in this passage when he describes a certain wedding feast of one of Arthur's would-be knights and his new bride. At Windsor that day... With the approval and permission of my lord Gawain and the king, the marriage was celebrated. No one could tell, I am sure, so much of the magnificence and the food, of the pleasure and entertainment at this wedding, without falling short of the truth. Inasmuch as it would be distasteful to some, I do not care to waste further words upon the matter, but am anxious to turn to another subject. Right. So, even if there were roast porcupines at this banquet, we wouldn't be hearing about them. Now, Gretchen, being a Frenchman, does spend quite a bit of time on how much wine was served at court, but we unfortunately never learn the vintages like we did with Thornton. But what about even earlier? Well, King Arthur does make a notable appearance in Geoffrey of Monmouth's Latin text, History of the Kings of Britain which is only slightly older than Chrétien's story. But, unfortunately, no one does much feasting in it. And to be honest, that's par for the course, if you forgive the feasting pun, as we go back in time. Few details about early medieval banquets come down to us. Recipe books for Western medieval Europe are few and far between if we travel much earlier than the year 1000. But, interestingly... Just as we looked at a fictional account of King Arthur from the 1400s, similarly, epic traditions or stories might help us to figure out what role feasting had for early medieval communities, particularly if we're sticking to King Arthur's territory in the British Isles. 
Because before King Arthur was King Arthur, there was Beowulf, the hero of an epic poem written in Old English. Now, the oldest manuscript we have for Beowulf dates from around the 10th century, but depending on who you ask, this story is way older, maybe by a few hundred years. Now, I hear you piping up in the back. Yes, the story of Beowulf actually takes place in Scandinavia, not in the British Isles. Yes, yes. But let's not forget some critical details. Who was hanging out in the British Isles right around this time? That's right, the Vikings from Scandinavia. Bringing with them their own legendary tales and traditions of celebrating deeds with epic feasts. Now, I'm not asking you to remember Beowulf from studying it that one week back in high school, but if you have read it, or if you saw that movie version of it starring Angelina Jolie, think for a moment where much of the action takes place. The Hall. Specifically, the Mead Hall, which the monster Grendel had apparently taken quite a fondness to. And from its name alone, you can kind of figure out what the emphasis is here. Forget those herons served with a delicious sauce or in their own plumage. Mead, or alcohol, is the focal point in this feasting tradition. And given the conditions, you can understand why. Listen to how a feast is described as the warriors prepare for yet another onslaught from Grendel. Talk about literal liquid courage. Oh, and by the way, this description in the iconic meat hall comes from J.R.R. Tolkien's version of Beowulf. Yes, that J.R.R. Tolkien. Full often have champions of war flushed with drink over the goblets of ale, made vaunt that in the drinking hall they would meet the warlike might of Grendel with the terror of their blades. Then for the young Geetish knights together in company, a bench was made free in the drinking hall. There to their seats went those stout of heart, resplendent in their strength. An esquire his office heeded, he that bore in hand the jeweled ale goblet and poured gleaming out the sweet drink. So between a 10th century battle-ready meat hall and a 15th century Arthurian banquet, at least there was a shared fondness for jeweled goblets? But seriously, although the rich descriptions of food might be missing from the Danish hall, the role of bonding over alcohol certainly seems to be a running theme. When Beowulf does arrive to help with the whole Grendel problem, he is specifically treated to mead, along with food and obviously a place to stay. And that ability to provide good food, and at least in the Danes' case, good meat, was a critical part of hospitality. Basically, one of the whole points of being in charge, i.e. being king in the first place. That's why Grendel's attack on the meat hall was considered particularly awful. The monster was actually literally taking away the king's ability to provide for his people. But hospitality wasn't something that was just expected of kings— Everyone was expected to treat guests or even strangers appropriately, something reflected in law codes from the period. If we look to some early English law codes as early as the 7th century, 
we find specific provisions highlighting how important it is to treat guests well. Hosts that had provided food and lodging to guests and then committed crimes against them were particularly vilified. Now, that hospitality existed in the past is certainly not a massive revelation. Providing food and drink to guests is something that transcends borders and periods. But it's interesting to see how depictions of King Arthur paint him in the role of the host as part and parcel of his job to be basically the perfect king. And consider how that host role changed over several centuries as the Arthurian legends were developing themselves, so that by the 15th century, you have Arthur providing a feast that even King Henry VIII would have been jealous of. And by that point, food was something to be obsessed over in medieval England, where theatricality and over-the-top consumption were part and parcel of the royal meal. So what better way, at least in Thornton's eyes, to show off the perfect king than one who can give a perfect meal? Arthur may have started as a warrior fighting the Saxons back with Nennius, but by the 15th century he was a consummate host complete with international wine offerings and courses that couldn't help but impress even the Romans. Forget pulling a sword out of a stone. For Thornton, the mark of a truly legendary king was how he threw a dinner party. The Feast is written and produced by me, Laura Carlson, with technical direction by Mark Port. Now, last week we promised you a bit of news, didn't we? Well, I'm pleased to say, The Feast has new t-shirts. And if I do say so myself, they're pretty fantastic. We'll get them up on our online store soon. But before we do, we're going to be giving away five of these new shirts for free to the first five people that sign up on Patreon at the $1 per month level. For those people who do sign up, we're also going to throw in some other goodies like Feast stickers and some postcards too. It's a pretty good deal. To learn more, head to patreon.com slash feastpodcast, and there you can see some of the photos of the t-shirts fresh off the presses. Just remember to include your t-shirt size when you do become a patron. We really couldn't do this show without our patrons, so why not become a real-life supporter of the arts? Find out more at patreon.com slash feastpodcast. Music today by Jazar, Philip Weigel, and PC3. Learn more about these great artists and all the show notes from this episode by visiting our website at www.thefeastpodcast.org. Well, that's all for us this week. Join us again in two weeks' time as we explore another great meal that made history. I'm Laura Carlson, and this is The Feast. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.